Well, I think this is a uh, eventful day, I guess, in a, in a different sense. It's the first time I think James has missed Cornerstone when this, he has been on this side of the world. He's only missed Cornerstone when he is on mission trips or to Ireland or Czech or Russia or Kazakhstan. That's, um, but he is with his wife and his newborn baby. I saw them on Friday and they're doing well. And But uh, please keep them in prayer that during this transition time everything will go well even for Elizabeth. You know, she has a new sister and uh, it'll be a transition for her as well. One thing I'd like to plug before we get into the Word this morning is, um, uh, is prayer. Our prayer list. I notice that it's kind of dwindling as time goes by. Um, it is we have about 120, 130 members in our church. And I counted, there was about 31 prayer lists on there. And I say this because it's one of those things, even the thing, I'll talk about evangelism today. Prayer and evangelism, you ask any Christian, we all feel inadequate. And I feel inadequate along with you. I say this because prayer has become an eye-opening thing in a sense recently. Remember, I shared with you last week, when most of you were here, that spoke to, Pastor Bagajan, and he, I told him, because he's in a church with about 10 members, I told him, and there's a body of cornerstone. More than 100 members are praying for you. And he was so encouraged. He almost had tears in his eyes. You know, we have that availability every month. You know, because I know that if your prayer list isn't on there, you're probably not praying for the church as well. And praying for the members. It's a privilege to pray for one another. So please, I think... I try to make it, when Julie sends out an email, I try to do it within five minutes. I don't close my email box until I get that done because I need the prayer. We all need prayer. And we, I think um, that, is, that should be our heart. And also, not to just have other people pray for you, is to pray for other people as well. And it's a great ministry that we could do on our own in the privacy of our lives. That it is just as honoring to God as anyone who would come up here and speak or pray in front of people. And I pray that uh, I pray that that'll be um, the future of Cornerstone. That that is the strength of our church. That's a barometer, they say, of any Christian is their prayer life, and maybe so for the church. The barometer of the health and well-being spiritually of our church, maybe that prayer list and the amount of time that that we pray for one another. So let's just keep that in mind as we go forward and to remember to pray for one another. Well. Along with prayer, again, I said, evangelism, when it comes to this text, I think we all feel inadequate. And I, I want to preach this because I feel inadequate. You know, we often call ourselves, how do we distinguish ourselves in the world today? We often call ourselves one word that, that, that we describe ourselves, because if we say we're a Christian, it could mean a hundred different things. So one of the, the words, that term, terminology that we use to maybe label ourselves is evangelical. It's a very popular term, and you call it evangelical, evangelical Christian. Well, if you're an evangelical Christian, it's sort of redundant, right? If you think about that, it's like evangelical means gospel-believing. So is there, does that mean that there's non-gospel-believing Christians? No, that doesn't make sense, right? Evangelical, we're evangelicals because we evangelize. We're those who believe in the gospel. Who preach the gospel. And as I ask this question today, of myself and all of you, are we truly evangelicals today? Or better yet, 
let me ask, pose that question in a different manner. Are we practical evangelicals today? Or, on the other side of the fence, what is the complete opposite of a, a practical evangelical? Is a practical atheist. What are we more closer to? How can we tell the difference? Okay. I think the I ask myself this. I think the complete difference between a practical evangelical and a practical atheist is where's the gospel? Evangelical, just by its terminology, should have the gospel in the forefront of the evangelical's mind at all times. I ask this question because I'm not here to rebuke you, but I'm asking this question because that was the answer I, I had to give. I personally had to give to that question. Well, the answer was that gospel message is not in the forefront of my mind, or in the forefront of my lips, just waiting to go off. And with that question, I want to share with you a few things this morning. You know, from early on in our Lord's message, He says what? He said, I will make you fishers of men. Remember, fishermen, no one is born a fisherman. Right? No one is born a fisherman. They are made. They are made through, in a spiritual sense, knowing Him and understanding His plans, the unfolding plan of God through the Word. Understanding that God wants to save all men. And He expects who to do it? Us to do it. Believers to do it. No one else can. That's the only qualification of an evangelical is that you're a believer. Okay? You don't, your resume doesn't have to be long. Just one sentence. That you are, you have repented and you're a follower of Christ. So how are we to understand Matthew 28? What exactly is the Great Commission? What is the mission in the Great Commission? Let's put that into perspective first. In the big picture, you know that Great Commission is not the only purpose in the life of a Christian. We do other things. We equip saints. Leaders take care of the flock. We encourage one another. We pray for one another. These are all encompassing things of a Christian's life. But proclaiming the gospel is an integral and indispensable part of any believer, all believers who follow Christ. It's indispensable because otherwise none of us would be here if that weren't the case. If we had to have heard from another person the gospel message and that seed that was sown in us that God watered and He allowed it to grow. So in a macro sense, in a micro sense, we partake in the evangelism, evangelism effort to lead, help lead unbelievers to repentance. We know that it is ultimately God will save them, but we proclaim the truth to them, make it known to them. But within that, in the big picture, we do all these things. We come to church, worship, sing songs, go to Bible studies, pray, listen to the Word, teach the Word to glorify God, to worship Him. This is the very reason why we're saved is here, is to worship Him. You know, I think the greatest problem with the failure of Evangelicals in the area of evangelism is not information. We know the gospel message. It's not knowledge. 
It's not lack of understanding of the gospel message. Because we know it because we have to, we're for believers. We know it, right? I think it's motivation, maybe lack of burden, lack of boldness, lack of courage. It could be any or all of those things. So in Matthew 28, so we want to be practical evangelists today. Practical evangelicals today. So we need to understand what this Matthew 28, the great commission that Christ gives to His disciples and what that means to us. But before that, let's go over some biblical reasons for evangelism. I want to go over five fundamental understandings of evangelism and to know why should gospel be in the forefront of our minds? Why should gospel be on our lips, ready to go off at any time when there's availability? Like I shared with you last week. When I was in Kazakhstan, Marcus and I, we couldn't speak the language. Marcus speaks much more than I do. You know? He could negotiate taxi fares. You know, I was just, Marcus would negotiate taxi fares. He would open the door for me. I'd just get in and ride, right? <laughs> And that's the thumbs up, thumbs down, depending on Jesus or Allah. So, very simple. Now, I was very frustrated. I was dying to meet with people who, would, who could speak English. I was dying to meet with... But that's in Kazakhstan. That's in Almaty, right? But if I go around the corner right here, take about 50 steps, I could meet tons of people who speak English, right? And that's the reason why I want to uh, share with you this morning. The, the Great Commission of Matthew 28. But, what, why should gospel be in the forefront of our minds? Number one, it is God's desire. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all men to be saved. So how does gospel affect us? It's not between just something I do in front of God. The issue is not me and God. The issue is, we have to go bigger than that. The issue is, God and the entire world. All men. Because God says, He didn't want to specifically find some people and save them. He said, God desires all men to be saved. That God is reconciling all sinners to the world, to Himself. That is God's desire. In 1 Timothy 2.4, this is such a prayer for all is good and welcome before God our Savior since He wants all people to be saved. It's universal. It's not limited to one, any particular group or ethnicity. In Isaiah 45.22, God says, Turn to Me and be saved, all ends of the earth. God is inviting all people because all people are sinners and we're wicked and will ultimately be condemned. That we should pray, as Paul wrote in Colossians 4, that God may open doors for the Word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. We have that mystery of Christ because we are Christians. In a, in a way, that we are gospel givers. Being an evangelical means we are gospel givers. We need to understand that everyone must be involved. Okay? Everyone must be involved. It is a desire for, our desire should be saying that same as that of God, 
that we desire, we should desire all men to be saved as well. That we should live and work like that. See, the mess, there's nothing wrong with the mess. Usually, you know, you, we often hear the f- phrase that, um, um, what's wrong with the, don't kill the messenger. Because uh, there's something wrong with the message. You know, we often hear that, right? But it's the other way around for us. There's nothing wrong with the message. But we should seek ourselves, question ourselves as messengers. What's wrong with the messengers? Because there's nothing wrong with the message. We know that message is perfect. And it empowers us. Empowers us. God promises to empower us to do the work to proclaim to the ends of the earth. This is our task. This is our duty. Secondly, another reason why the gospel should be in the forefront of our minds is it is an act of obedience. It's to obey His commands. If we love Him, we obey His commands. Love for Christ. How do you demonstrate? Now, I ask, ask this question a lot. How do I demonstrate this day love for Christ? It's to obey Him. John fourteen fifteen right? If you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you obey Him, you will glorify Him. 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. You know, Christ Himself was a model of obedience, right? He was the epitome of obedience. Why did He die on the cross? Why did Christ die on the cross? Number one reason is out of obedience to the Father. God is glorified when we are obedient to Him. God is glorified when we preach the gospel to the lost. So what prevents Christians from obeying this command to evangelize? What prevents us? So I jotted some some reasons. One probably major reason is the fear of man. There's a greater fear of man than fearing God. I struggle with this. When someone comes by who's an unbeliever, you know, it's not there. We saw, we see in um, John 12, when the, after Jesus did miraculous things, but they were afraid of the Pharisees, and they loved the praise of men more than praises from God. Second thing that may hinder us that we have wrong view of Scripture. This is the, uh, the buffet mentality. As long as we obey some things of the Bible, some things that God commands us to do, it's okay. It's okay. Maybe a feeling of inadequacy. Like Moses. Perhaps that could be one of those things. Or maybe even, how much do we really desire to evangelize to the lost because we have compassion like Christ did for the lost? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, it says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Those are strong words. When they use the word woe, it's cursed. Curse me if I don't pre- preach the gospel. Those are strong words. Okay? Those are strong words. Because you're condemning yourself if I don't. Then we have to ask ourselves, do we have that attitude? Number three, another reason why we should have the gospel in the forefront of our minds is is why we're saved. Another, one of the reasons why we're saved, one major reason, is to help save others. 
You know, Spurgeon said this. I love Spurgeon. He just cuts to the chase. He puts it into crystallized form of theology. He says, if you do not wish for others to be saved, you're not saved yourself. It is a characteristic of those who love God and who have been saved by God to love to share the gospel. There is no exemption from this. Being shy or being timid, that's my personality. I'm not an evangelist. I wasn't made that way. There's nothing like that in Scripture. We all need to be bold to proclaim the gospel. To seize the moment. Because no other, no other group of people could do this besides Christians. It is all up to us. You know, for time to time, in the life of the church, there's a time I think we all need to wake up. And the wake-up call may not just come once. It usually comes several times to the basic, where it points to the basic, central things of a Christian. And this is one of those things, I think. Because reflect on this, people, my brothers and sisters. Reflect on this. If you can categorize Christianity... And what type of religion is it? It's a converting religion. It's going forth religion. How many times have you seen people, uh, Muslims come out to you and preach their doctrine to you? Very rarely. But there's some religions, they go forward with eagerness, with zeal. And Christianity, more than any other religion, because it is the truth of Christ that depicts in the scriptures that it must be it must be a converting persuasive expansive missionary effort we don't use coercion we don't use the sword we don't manipulate or brainwash what we are called to do is simply proclaim the truth This is, our, this is to be our passion, people. This is to be passion. We should have passion to win the loss over to Christ. Have you ever seen, you know, I, I watched a couple of football games yesterday. Just end the couple of games. That's all I need to watch. Right? You watched the SC game yesterday. All you need to watch about the last six minutes and you were done. Can you imagine a football player who's passionless? You know, I've I played a little bit in my olden days. You know, the only sport that I played was that when I came home from a game, from my neck down, everything hurt. You know, at one time I, I got a cramp rolling over in bed one night. You know, I screamed and I, my mom probably thought I was possessed or something. <laughs> right? There's no such thing as a passionless football player. If you're passionless, you're not a football player. Or a passionless preacher who doesn't have conviction on what he's teaching. Or any teacher who doesn't have convictions or believes in what he's teaching. Or someone who's just merely regurgitating. We need to have passion for this. Passion for evangelism. Because it is our God-ordained duty. With that, it is our duty. It is our responsibility. Fourth reason why the gospel should be in the forefront of our minds is that, remember in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. This is the very treasure that has been given to us. You know, it's something that we can't pay others to do it. 
We can't leave it to someone else. It is our call. This is the most valuable thing we own. We must spiritually multiply. I would say one more thing. If you see Paul throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, we see the urgency Paul has for the gospel, for the sake of the lost. Because I believe Paul had this urgency for the gospel because he knew someday, someday, that he would be in front of Christ, that every Christian will be in front of Christ, and we have to give an account of the treasure that has been given to us, that talent that has been given to us. And it's been given to all of us equally. And see Christ and answer what was done with it. I think the church today, modern day church in general, has lost the desperate sense of urgency that Paul had. I think I say this with some hesitation. You know, perhaps, perhaps, I'll just throw this out there for you. Perhaps more than prayer, more than financial support, more than just training people, more than just teaching people, that we need to have the sense of urgency to do it ourselves. Maybe these things are the easy way out. We may hide. Do we hide our, behind prayer? Do we hide behind our teaching and put it on other people to do it? I pray that we would imitate Paul on this particular characteristic of him having sense of urgency of the gospel. Because every one of us has been charged with the stewardship of the gospel. So what has happened to the gospel that has been trusted to you, to us? Are we working hard for it? Do we have a sense of urgency? Lastly, last reason why the gospel should be in the forefront of minds is Matthew 28. It is the command. There is nothing wrong with the greatest messages in this world. The good news of the gospel. The greatest hindrance, again, is not the message. It's the messenger. The lack of passion for it. What's preventing us? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the gospel for the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes so I, I would just kind of turn that question around again. Similar to the question I posed earlier is not literal question, but a practical question. Are we practically ashamed of the gospel? No, no Christian would say, I'm, not, I'm ashamed of the gospel. But if you rephrase that question to say, are we practically ashamed of the gospel? Then we need to answer that question. Because 2 Timothy 1.8 says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You know, I speak to men such as our missionary Peter Smith, the Kazakh Bible Institute director, Allah Krotsky. These people rarely ask for money. Rarely ask for money. But they, they usually always ask for people. Money is good to support other things. 
But I go to Kazakhstan, and there's tons of material that we could hand out. We, we, we didn't lack materials. We had more. I was giving Bibles out left and right. right? I couldn't speak the language, so let's hand out Bibles. But we lack people. You know, I heard recently a pastor candidating for a position in the Midwest somewhere. And he applied for that position. And there were 600 pastors candidating for that one position. 600. There are way too many workers in this country. Right? 600 people should gather to one place to want to minister in one place. There's something wrong with that picture. And you've got people overseas who are dying for workers. Right? We're dying for workers to come and join in the ministry. We need bold men and women to take the message to the message of grace to the lost with the proper understanding that God wants to grant the faithless faith. You know, Christianity from the very beginning, from get-go, as Christ gave this command in an aggressive evangelistic way of life. That's how disciples lived it. Jesus' commanding and his parting passion for the church was make disciples. And the results recorded in the book of Acts is amazing. Acts 2, 41 says, they were added about 3,000 that day. In Acts 5, all the more believers in the Lord, multitude of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Acts 6, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly. The number of disciples. Acts 16, so the church was being strengthened in the faith and was increasing in numbers daily. Remember, there's no exemption for shy or timid Christian. There's no retirement age. Even spiritual maturity. If you're a believer... If you profess to be a believer, we must be faithful. You know, there is no such thing like in Monopoly, get out of evangelism card. There's no such thing. No such thing. You can't exercise that. As we focus on our unbelievers all around us, at home even, even our workplaces, even our schools, all around us, our neighborhood, we need to put this command into action. We need to make this a priority. Praying for the people's salvation and being used by God, proclaiming diligently the work of the, and the understanding, the gospel message. We know that salvation is the work of God in the man's heart alone. God does the work. He chooses whom to be saved. But the most wonderful, I think, the amazing fact about this, God chooses us. The only mode is that God chooses to use sinners to do the work. Therefore, it is a privilege and honor to partake in this ministry. And everyone is a gospel minister. You may not be a minister who will stand behind the pulpit and teach others, but everyone is, the gospel, is a gospel minister to proclaim. In this text, Christ uses one assumption and two elements showing us how to evangelize, what evangelism is. 
in this text, what is the heart of the message? Is to make disciples. We assume the assumption is to go, that we need to baptize and teach them. The Great Commission is a command to bring unbelievers to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Great Commission was given as a command to the disciples to make more, duplicate, replicate themselves. Okay, the focus on make disciples, it doesn't say make converts. Okay, it says make disciples. We're not shooting for mere profession or conversion. Goal is discipleship. Okay, the heart of Matthew 28, Great Commission, is make disciples. Again, go is not the, for, the purpose. The main verb is to make. Make what? Disciples. Everybody focuses on the word go. Oh, we must go. Yeah, you should go. But here, going is assumed, right? It's like, I went to dinner at Mike's house. I, I had dinner at Mike's house. I make that statement. Well, if I had dinner at Mike's house, you would assume that somehow I got in my car or my skateboard, I found a way to go to his house. Right? Right? Somehow, I got there. I went. Mike picked me up somehow. You assume. So when making disciples, go is assumed. Just because you go to Czech Republic, just because you go to Kazakhstan, doesn't seal the deal. You're just getting warmed up. Game has just begun. The main verb is to make disciples. It's an imperative. I love this uh, illustration or the phrase that um, one of the commentators used. It says a brick command. So the literal translation is, having gone, understanding you will go, just get out of your house and make disciples. That's his command. That's Christ's command to to the disciples in Matthew 28. This impact, this important, we must take note and it's immeasurable. And this command to make disciples by Christ is only given once here. It is a supreme command that His desire for people is to go to all nations and make disciples. So the assumption is go, right? If you say someone has faith, you assume that he has repented, Right? It goes without saying. True faith requires repentance. So it is a basic. Going is basic. It's basically assumed. Having gone. Then we come to the two subordinate verbs. Baptizing and teaching, it says. So the first element is baptizing. So why does, why does he stress this? Because baptism was an outward sign of inward faith in Christ, because baptism was synonymous with salvation. We know that baptism itself doesn't save, but it was an outward symbol, visible symbol, to what was done in a man's heart. It was an overt act of obedience. First act of obedience is to be baptized. It's a, it demonstrates the reality of salvation. You've got to remember the context of baptism. That, those days, you go out to a river or a lake, you, publicly bat, you, you um, get publicly baptized, your life was on the line, right? 
So different context, but it is an initial step of obedience to testify their union, the death and burial, the resurrection of Christ, which is beautifully symbolized through the immersion baptism. Right? It is an important, the important significance is baptism is a proclamation of one's life that it breaks his or he or she is saying they're breaking their relationship with the world and being united with Christ. That's another beautiful picture. It's being identified with Christ. Because Peter says in Acts 22.38 says, repent and let each of you be baptized. We see this act in Acts, baptism, all the time with association with conversion. In Acts 2, the 3,000 souls were saved and baptized. In Acts 8, Ethiopian believed and he was baptized. When Paul's sight was restored after meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, he was baptized. In Acts 10, when the Cornelius and his household were saved, they ordered them to be baptized. We know that baptism has no work of salvation, but is God-ordained, God-commanded accompaniment to salvation. It's an act of obedience. It's a symbolic act of obedience. Right? Symbolic act. When we were in Kazakhstan, one thing, no one wears head covering here. You go to Kazakhstan, 70% of all, all married women in the church, they wear head covering. Right? And you read um, 1 Corinthians 11, you take that literally, the head covering whole issue, there's no way to avoid that. All of us should, oh, women, married women should wear a head covering. You can't get away from that, literally. But we know that as a symbolic act of submission to that, you know. It's kind of funny. Some women, older women, wear foot, full-on head covering. And you see some of the younger wives, they wear like little headbands. Just to cover it up. It's symbolized. So, so where do you draw the line? How much of the head must be covered? I asked that question. But, you know, I, I didn't want to offend anybody, so I let it go. But it's symbolic act. And baptism, in a different sense, is a symbolic act. Baptism is synonymous with salvation. Synonymous with making disciples. The second element now is a deeper element. is teaching. What is teaching? So our burden, number one, is to teach what Christ has commanded. A truly converted person will hunger for the truth of the word and we must feed them. We must teach them what the Lord has commanded, that it is a lifelong commitment to obedience. Jesus said, whatsoever I commanded you, we have the command of Christ. You know, in this postmodern world, and there's no absolute truth. In this world, many people are imprisoned behind the walls of subjectivity, opinions, different set of realities, however people want to view the world. These are results of sinful, sinfulness of man's heart. And these are diametrically opposed to the scriptures. Jesus says, I am way the truth in life. And everyone must deal with that. Christians should be firmly committed to proclaim the gospel and determined. We must have determination in this postmodern world to share the gospel boldly. There's no time for timidity. The battle is out there. People need to be saved. 
And we need to continue this effort in this difficult world to compellingly argue and present and proclaim to this all-tolerant world that there's only one message, one truth, that all roads don't lead to Rome, that only through Christ there is life. That they must cry out for a Savior and repent of their sins. And that is the requirement of life. So what is this term? The main verb we come across, make, disciples. Does it mean that it is enough for us to go to some other parts of the world or even here in Southern California and hand out tracts alone, all day? Is that enough? Because we want to present, in Colossians 1.28 it says, we proclaim Him by instructing and teaching all people with all wisdom so that we may present every person mature in Christ. Gold is maturation of, of people. You know, making disciples is an active participation. Not a passive participation in salvation. Active participation in the arena of evangelism. We need to be intricately devoted to make people disciples. In the biblical context, a disciple means a learner or a pupil who is under instruction. The core assignment in the Great Commission is not just to win converts or hold great evangelistic rallies to pass out information or teach Bible class or teach theology or just to defend the faith. No. The one thing stands out here is make is imperative. Make disciples. It is calling people to convert them and calling them for a lifelong commitment of obedience to Christ. To mature in Christ. We need to help them mature. Show them what maturity is. You know, I know that every Christian may not be a gifted teacher. God has given us different talents. But every Christian must be committed to this effort. A follower of Christ must proclaim the truth. Absolutely necessary to expose the lost condition of sinners. That God has a solution a plan, a redemptive plan. The Great Commission implies more than just proclaiming the gospel. We're looking for growth, maturation. True discipleship implies much more. We need to have the converts grasp in their hearts. And that's part of the picture. It is important to remember, teaching means also didactically, didactically proclaiming the gospel to them, but also showing them how to live their lives. We must model this as disciples, to make disciples, in order to make disciples. That's all we try to do as leaders of the church, right? We preach the word. We're not the word. We don't live like the words that we preach. I am just this, this day, just this moment. I, I should be sitting where you are as I listen to this message and teach this message. 
I'm preaching to myself. It's what we hear. We must model. We must live it out. John MacArthur calls this disciple a learning believer. One who follows constant and consistently to learn to be a believer and to be a follower of Christ. There implies, making disciples implies certain level of maturity to be sought. This is a hallmark of discipleship. This is the hallmark of discipleship. I, I didn't know what analogy to use, so forgive me if I offend anybody. But you know, I, I'm, I raised one boy to be nine, and I have another one coming, I have to do it over again. But when boys, girls, girls are much easier for some reason, but your boys need to be potty trained someday. All of us, they go through that. All of us have been potty trained. The best way to, for boys to be potty trained is to show them how it is done. You, you model that for them. And they follow along. Similarly, and I, forgive me for using that example. I couldn't think of anything. So, but, again, training and modeling is very important. Okay? If we're shooting for short-term obedience, if life range for a Christian is short-term, it's a sprint, no big deal. But we're calling lifelong commitment and lifelong obedience. Just proclaiming the gospel is not enough. We need to show them how to live as disciples. That means we have to live the life. It's more than a verbal exchange. We need to show it. You know, we ask ourselves, we we need to, as Christians, we need to die to Christ every day, right? Die to Christ every day. What does that mean? How do you die to Christ today? Or tomorrow, Monday morning, when you wake up in the morning, how do you die to Christ? It's hard to teach that. But I believe every Christian could show that. And to show it. Showing has so much to do with this. You know, I, I, was, pre, I was preparing for the message. I was in the Word yesterday and doorbell rings. Guess who comes to the door? Uh, two Korean Jehovah's Witnesses. Koreans come to my house. Specifically for me. I was busy. I was in the Word and I kind of closed the door and I took about five steps. I go, well, I can't let them get away now, right? <laughs> so I quickly ran after them. I stopped them in their van. They got up and they came just for me. So I was kind of honored. So I asked them to get out of the car and share the gospel with them. Okay? I asked them to come back. So I'm gonna, I told them that you could always come to my house. You could always come to my house, come to my house, but you have to allow me to preach to you. You could say what you want to say. But my goal is this. These people, I don't know how God gave them quickly, is that these people are unregenerate people. They are sinful people. They're living in sin in some way, shape, or form, right? So I pray that they would come to my life. Because I can't change them in 10, 10 minutes, right? And they're sure not going to change me, right? And I want them to come in my life. They could have a meal with me anytime they would want. I invited them. You come and share my life. Now, over the period of time, I believe I have faith in God that my actions will show the fruits of salvation and they'll see that they would be exposed to the sins of their lives because they're unregenerate people. That's my aim. 
That's why Marcus and I, we talked to a Muslim in Germany. We talked to ours and our McDonald's food got cold. It's very difficult to, to evangelize to Muslims and change them. The way to change people like that who have convictions in other things, in false religion, is through life. Modeling Christ. Modeling the gospel message. And we're reading that book, Gospel for Real Life. Living it out. Living the gospel message out. The obedience to Christ is the way. And we show converts how do we do that in our lives. That's much more than teaching. That takes huge commitment. It's not commitment for two or three weeks. That's why these short-term missions that we go on are limited. We could only do basic groundwork and help them for a short period of time. The rest of it is up to God. The rest of it up to the, is up to the other saints who labor and toil on the field. This is why we need people to go out for a long-term basis if this is going to happen and making disciples is going to happen. Making disciples is to imitate and be followers, teaching through life, teaching through the Word, and modeling for them a likeness of Christ. It is not enough to stand behind the pulpit. It is not enough to stand in classes and to, just to teach. It's not enough just to go out and hand out tracts for 30 minutes, to go passionately preach the gospel and model it. And one of the greatest things is, in verse 20, this is our confidence. It says, I am with you, Christ says, to the very end of age. There is no vagueness about this statement. What does that mean? There's no vagueness. I am with you. This is one of those things that Christ makes a guarantee, right? He gives his assurance. I am with you when you do these things. It's perfectly clear in his great commission. Now, do we really understand this? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to this particular objective. To make disciples of all nations. Christ makes this guarantee. I am with you. I'll be there in my presence. Just remember, he says, or pay close attention to this. He emphatically says this to the end. Because we know this, and as we was promised through Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, this my grace is sufficient to you, for you. And Acts 1.8 says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be my witness, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. This is the reason why I want to go to Kazakhstan. I want to go to Czech Republic or wherever God calls me to. Because this is where my confidence is. I have no confidence in myself. It is all Christ. Just to conclude, is that what is the happiest day for a Christian? Our birthdays? Joe and Elaine just got married. Maybe your wedding day? Your anniversary, maybe James and Sarin, when a child is born. I can relate to that. But I think, in my humble opinion, the happiest day for a Christian should be when sinners come to repentance. When sinners come to repentance, it should be a privilege and honor to help them be a disciple. How do we do that? We need to show a life of a disciple. Right? Luke 5, 7 and 10 says, In the same way, there will be more joy in heaven when sinners repent.
In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Heaven rejoices. God rejoices when sinner repents. When we lead someone to Christ, it is a privilege and honor to partake in that. And it's a privilege and honor to do continual work to make them disciples, to show them, love them, how to follow. Why? Why? This all culminates to this. Why? When we make disciples, when we convert somebody and someone becomes a disciple, they will ultimately become, the goal is to become worshippers of God. We are teaching them to be worshippers of God. Does your life as a disciple depict that of a worshipper? Not just a Christian, not just a believer, a worshipper. Are we worshippers? Okay, let's put that the question. Always put the word practical in it. Are we practical worshipers in our lives? Do we pray like practical worshipers? That is the heart of discipleship. That is the heart of making disciples is worship. Because John 4.23, but time is coming when the true worshipers will re- worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such people to be His worshipers. The meaning of making disciples, meaning of evangelism, the goal is to help people become, ultimate end is to become worshipers. The sheep is lost because they don't worship. That's the only difference. Because they worship something more than God. Usually their sins. Right? You ask anybody out there, you ask them, what do they love to do? They love their sin. Most people won't admit it, but if they're truthful about themselves, they'll say that. Even us, all of us as believers, we struggle with the same thing. God desires all men to worship Him. And John Piper says this, the mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Worship is the ultimate focus, not missions. Because God is the ultimate focus, not man. You know, we know that someday missions will be all over. Time for missions will be over. Missions don't need to exist anymore. But worship will exist throughout eternity. As I said last week, you know, if you come to worship here, it's tough for you, it's boring for you. Imagine how long it will be for you and the rest of eternity. Because that's all we'll do is to worship. Christians should love to worship. When this world ends, the redeemed, the elect, will come before the throne of God and worship Him. The reason God rejoices, I think, over the winning of the lost souls is He delights because every person that is saved becomes that much closer to complete worship. I said this morning, this is not complete worship. We have limited worship today. It's still worship, but limited worship compared to what will happen in eternity. Are we limited? I mean, are we satisfied with limited worship? We shouldn't be. Because our goal is that day at the end when every single soul that needs to be saved, but God desired to be saved, is saved, and every single soul is there to worship Him, that is full-on worship. 
I long to see that day because then that day will be the most joyous day not only in our lives, I believe in God's redemptive plan because God will finally get the worship He deserves. Until then, we are robbing Him and everything is short of the full worship He deserves. And we should have passion for God's worship. We should have passion so that everyone that needs to worship Him would worship Him. That will be a complete and what a sight that will be. Brothers and sisters, making disciples takes a lot of effort, huge commitment. It takes everything. And if it hasn't started now, I pray my exhortation to you is start today. Be a true, practical evangelist. Be a practical evangelical. I pray that all of us will be true, faithful, and practical evangelicals who make disciples, who in turn will make worshipers for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. We give you thanks for first saving all of us undeserved sinners. Then you call on us to do the work. What do we have to offer God? We barely have the words to speak. We barely have any talents to do your work. But one thing that has been given to us is the precious message of the gospel. I pray that we would be faithful workers, evangelists, who proclaim the word and model and show how disciples are to live. There's much work to be done. And you require us, all of us, to take on that duty. I pray, as we look upon the Great Commission, the command of Christ, that we would go to the ends of the earth, not to barely scratch the surface of the gospel, gospel work, but to do faithfully, to minister fully, completely, with great passion and commitment. To be an example on how to die to oneself. How to die for Christ. And heaven be the central focus, point of our lives. That what the meaning of obedience really is, teaching them scripture and living that out. God, I pray that, that we would not live in superficiality, that we would be men and women, brothers and sisters, who would commit to teaching and modeling the depth of your word and depth the love that you have for us, that how we are to obey our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that everything we do, that we would that our hearts would be right in our motivation for you, that we would not take on these things just as mere tasks, that we would have a passion for your work, that we would commit ourselves in a lifelong sense to honor you by being gospel proclaimers and makers of disciples. I pray that you would use men and women of Cornerstone, that we would make that commitment to serve you 
all of us in this way. We pray in your Son's precious name for your glory. Amen.